Hey, good morning. How are we doing? Good. Where are my, uh, my baseball fans at? Spring training is upon us. Anybody? All right, that sounds, that sounds about right. I'll take it. I'll take it. Michael's excited. Machado just re-signed for 11 years. He'll be there until John Fox is in middle school, so that's great. Root for all that's great stuff. Uh, yeah, I like it. Spring's a fun time. I don't know what the last week was, but it was like, yesterday was, I think, a pretty good picture of like the last month. It was like, I think, six degrees at like midnight, and then it was 50 degrees at noon the next day, and I'm like, all right, that doesn't make any sense, but let's just let it ride. Uh, <laughs> Let's say that if you would, if you have your Bible, go ahead and uh, flip to Acts 14. And we're going to be there this week. Uh, let's pray. Jesus, we come before you, Lord, and we, um, we center our lives around you. We place you at the core of who we are, at the core of our identities. Lord, we take in your goodness, we take in your faithfulness. We take in your truth and your hope and your love. And we hope that Jesus, in our interactions with people in our community and in our thoughts, we have um, an outpouring of that goodness, that faithfulness, that hope that you give us, Jesus. And um, I know that in our culture right now, there is uh, such um, an intensity around criticism and around um, judgmentalism and um, slander, Jesus. And we just ask that you would help us to be a representation of you, Lord, and how you deal with that difficulty, Lord, and how you struggle through false accusations and, and difficulties and communication and how to support and love people who are working through the darkness of their own life, Jesus. And so um, bring us into your reality today. Help us center our lives around you. May you um, speak to us today. Uh, we focus on you. We bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, uh, Kayla and I, this is in our first year of marriage, uh, we decided to do something called a detox diet. Has anybody ever done a detox diet? Like you pick something that's delicious and fine and nobody seems to have any problem with it, you just decide to cut it out of your life for no reason, okay? So we did a detox diet and it was called the Whole30. Has anybody ever heard of that? The Whole30? Okay. It's really big in Eugene, so I don't know how much it's over here. Uh, but the Whole30 was like basically you cut out things that are called like inflammatories, or inflammatories? I'm still not actually sure how that works. Um, you cut it out, and you also cut out this thing called sugar, which apparently is in everything. And I didn't even know this. Like doing the Whole30, you cut out like dairy, so you cut out milk, cheese, yogurt, sour cream, butter, you cut out grain, corn, rice, quinoa, rye, millet, if you're really into that. Uh, you don't drink alcohol for the whole month, and you cut out beans of any kind, and you cut out added sugar. And you can't add side things or substitutes. So you can't be like, oh, I'm not going to have added sugar. So I'll just have a huge pint glass full of maple syrup and that will hold me over. Can't do that. They'll ding you for that one. The whole 30 police, okay? Uh, and I know I probably already have lost some of you. Um, but you're asking me why. Why would you do this? Well, we did this diet because, well, first of all, I want to I point out, I did not drive the train on this diet. My wife drove the train on this diet. Uh, <laughs> And I was just support. I'm like, I'm, in, I'm with you. I'm in it with you. Let's do it. 30 days, no sugar. How hard could this possibly be? Lo and behold, it was pretty difficult. Um, and, uh, but I'm glad we did it. Like, as a result, my body feels like it doesn't respond to sugar as much anymore. I don't crave it as much anymore. Yada, 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 yada. There's some benefits from it. But the point is, um, in the middle of it, 
I realized that like detoxing is not, it's no joke. And detoxing from something like sugar is, you know, kind of a trite thing to detox from. But I know for other people that have worked through difficult addictions in their life, detoxing from it means removing it from your life. Um, something that you have as a habit or an addiction, you say, I want to cut this out for the sake of my own health. Uh, and they say like day 11 is the time when you're like, okay, day 11 is like peak crankiness, irritability, like you're just going to hate whoever's around you. You're going to be like, ah, sorry, I haven't had sugar in 11 days. Get away from me. Like I can't talk to you, okay? I just want some sour cream and I want to be left alone, okay? <laughs> and so you like go to this 11-day period and you hit this point and you like get really cranky. And, and my reaction too was a little bit different. I worked at a restaurant at the time called Hawaiian Time, which made mac salad and teriyaki chicken. So you can imagine how hard that was for 30 days. Um, I actually ended up having like a bed of lettuce and some pork, and then hot sauce for 30 days for lunch. I felt like a monk. Um, and so we, we went through this whole process, and then that day in particular, I went to work, and I was working, and then I just got, I just, all the blood just like drained from my face. And I just started shaking, sweating, disoriented. Like I was like, what the heck is happening to me? Like, what is going on? I had to have my assistant manager come in. And I went home, and I was having these like deep, like, I was just, I was driving and I was like shaking, my hood was on, you know when you get like sick of the flu and you like put your hood on, you think that's going to make you feel better and you like hunch over the steering wheel and you're like, I just got to get home, I don't feel good. And I got home and I laid down, I was like, okay, I don't know what's going on with me, but I feel terrible. So I'll take a shower, took a shower, almost like fell in the shower, almost fell out getting out of the shower and I was like, what is going on? So I laid down in bed and I was like, I don't know what is happening, I feel terrible, I feel like I'm going to barf all over the place and Kayla's like, let me get you a cracker. So she gave me a saltine and I felt better. Because <laughs> what I realized, and as self-deprecating as that is, and kind of sad to be honest with you, uh, I realized that I was in a detox from sugar, and it was horrible. And I was like, this is how much this is ingrained in my life that just to cut it out for 11 days would lead me to this state? Like, that's kind of shocking, and you're kind of like, well, I just didn't realize this is in everything. And then as I went about doing the whole 30, we started realizing, man, sugar's in like everything. Everything I like has sugar in it. I was eating these veggie straws, and these veggie straws are delicious. They're like those little like, veggie things, and you get them from Costco. And I was like, these are great. And I was like, you know why? Sugar in them. And I was like, you're right. These are delicious. I miss these things. But you realize they slip it in, and it's kind of like hard to figure out like, what is in this? Like, where did this come from? Like, why is this so much a part of my life? And then as you go through the detox, you realize this is pretty deeply entrenched in who I am. And to work it out of my life was difficult. It was a struggle and took time and effort. Um, and my minor experience with detoxing just reminds me that we can easily justify destructive things out of complacency. We can easily go, I know this is bad. I know this isn't right. But we can easily justify it just because it's easier to let it ride or because other people are doing it or whatever, what have you. And you're going to ask what this has to do with Acts. Let's jump into Acts chapter 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, which was the typical way that Paul and um, the apostles kind of went into a city and started teaching at the synagogue, and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So you notice there's two different groups here, two opposing groups, right? So now there's the Jewish people in the synagogue, but also Greeks that are outside the synagogue come to believe. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up, we're going to come back to that term, the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of, the great, word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. 
And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews of the rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, in the cities of Lycaonia and the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. There's a lot happening in this passage. And when I, when I chose to study it, the first time I read through it, I was like, there's See, this is kind of like a quick, like, hey, just a quick update where Paul and Barnabas are at. This is what's going on, and then we're going to move on to the real story next. But as I started to dive into it more, I realized this is interesting. So Paul, do they normally do? They come and preach in the synagogue, and as they're preaching, people come and believe, and they're Jews and Greeks. And this is interesting because Jews and Greeks don't really get along. Jews and Gentiles are not really compatible. But there's a big outpouring of the Spirit. People come to, to the Lord, and then somewhere along the line, this group of, of Jewish people decides to stir up and poison the minds of the Gentiles. And the word there, as one, one uh, commentator pointed out, is this idea of slander. They used slander to convince the Gentiles that the apostles were not who they said they were. And then Paul's response is interesting because I feel like this is a great moment for Paul to give one of his really long, like, multiverse speeches, like, just big conversation to rebuke some people, to judge some people, and it's going to be really great, and then everybody's going to get saved, and it's going to be crazy, all right? But he doesn't do that. Instead, his response is he stays in the city. He doesn't leave the situation. He stays and he encourages believers for a long period of time. But then it happens again in verse 4. They divide him again through a slander campaign, as Stott points out. And then the Jews, the Gentiles, two incompatible groups come together to harm Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas learn of it, and they leave the city. Which seems like different from what we've seen previously in the book of Acts. I would assume that Paul and Barnabas would stay. They would experience some kind of martyrdom or persecution. It'd be a great story, and then we would move on with this amazing picture of their faithfulness. But instead, they leave. And we have to think about what this is talking about to kind of apply it to our life. So we take this idea, and we key in on the idea that the goal of this particular group of Jews and Israelites here was to poison the mind of the Gentiles, literally to create, as Stott says, a sophisticated slander camp- campaign to convince the Gentiles and poison their minds against the brothers. And it divides the city and, de- and destroys Paul and Barnabas' message. So this poisoner harm is this idea of slander. And here's like a, a modern day definition of what slander is. So slander, maybe we have a slide for it. Maybe my slides were funky today, so we'll see what happens with it. But Brett's running it, so I know we'll be okay. There he is. All right. So uh, slander as a noun is the action or crime of making a false or spoken statement damaging to a person's reputation. As a verb, it's to make a false and dam- damaging statement about someone. So call it slander, call it criticism. Our culture is no different from the situation they're dealing with in Iconium. Our, our culture is similar to this society, this desire to tear down and sort of a cultural or moral stoning of each other. Um, in 2019, just as the pandemic was kind of in the midst of its time, so it was a 2019 survey, but then it was data from 2020. I'm not sure how it works. Uh, but what Americans said about social media was interesting. So they said 64% of Americans surveyed felt that social media is having a mostly negative impact. Um, their second highest reason for this opinion was that there was too much hate and harassment and extremism. You could call that criticism. You could call it slander. It takes on various different ways. One person surveyed said the following. People say incendiary and thoughtless things online with the perception of anonymity, which means being anonymous, that they would never say to someone else in person. 
So our culture has taken an interesting bent to criticism. That is, we find spaces where we know that we don't actually have to interact with a human being, and when we interact with them online, we can call them all sorts of terrible things and say a bunch of things about them that aren't true in that medium because it gives us freedom to do that. But it's across the spectrum. And here's the other side of the conversation, too. One out of every one person surveyed does not like being criticized. Okay? No one goes, I just need more criticism in my life. What I need is more negative people in my life. Like, when you die, you're going to be like, you know, I wish I would have hung out with more negative people. Like, I, had, I was too happy all the time. I was having too much fun. I wish I got criticized more. I really wish somebody really just would call me on the mat all the time. But the interesting part is the last few years have given rise to a number of, of toxic habits. One of the most rampant is this kind of like moral policing that happens on social media, which is interesting given that our society kind of takes truth and doesn't really know what to do with it. And so when this desire for genuine truth collided with like the extreme like individualism of our culture and our, our own human desire to justify moral failure and couple that with comparing and blaming someone else for being worse than we are, uh, this toxic form of social responsibility has the guise of helpful accountability, right? We want people to do the right thing. We want people to act in a high manner. But in actuality, much of it is petty, overly critical, and slanderous. Instead of engaging in healthy human interaction and discourse and conflict, we have devolved into dredging up every mistake from a person's past as a reason why they are unfit to not just talk, but exist in the world. But slander and gossip go a lot deeper. They're part of our collective brokenness. As humans, slander and gossip make us feel good for a moment, but like every sin, or as one author called sin, misdirected love, or love turned in on itself. It leaves us empty, craving the next negative news or item of information that makes us feel better or more put together than the person next to us. And James, has an interesting conversation about this. He brings up this comparison of two different realities of the human life. He says, regarding the tongue or how we speak, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And he goes on to give this distinction. He goes, it's like fresh water and salt water. They can't really mix together, they can't work together. But this idea that as human beings, we're prone to speak positively in one bent, and then turn around and curse somebody in the next bend. And cursing doesn't mean swearing, right? We're not talking about just swearing at someone. When we say cursing, we mean pronouncing negativity on them. We mean speaking about them in a negative light. And if that goes to a really far extent, we find ourselves in a place of slander, wherein we're just like talking about someone behind their back and going like, but I love them. Don't get me wrong, I think they're great. I just have these fundamental reasons for why I don't like them. And you're like, <laughs> okay, that doesn't, those are incompatible, all right? And fortunately for us as followers of Jesus, Jesus offers us a path from that bondage. And make no mistake about it, negativity, criticism, and slander are bondage because we just can't seem to break out of it. No matter how difficult we try, and it seems free. Get together with a couple of our friends, talk about our friend who isn't there in a negative light, then switch friends and talk with that friend about the friend, the other friend we were with, and I was talking about negatively about them. We're like, ah, oh, yeah, but I love them. Bless them. God bless them. They're great. They're just kind of different from me. I don't know. And in the end, we realize that we're actually being more negative about people around us than being positive. And it's not even so much about being positive, but representing Jesus in the conversations we have. 
And at this point, it's good to make a distinction. I want to separate a couple of terms so we don't get caught in the weeds, all right? Gossip and slander are not the same as critiquing something, all right? Critique can be helpful in a calculated and intentional doses. I kind of think about like slander and gossip and critique and criticism as cousins, right? You're like, yes, they're sort of related and kind of similar in some ways, but too much of them for a short period of time makes you mad, okay? So we have to think about it in terms of that. They're similar, they're a little bit different. Like anything else, we can have too much of a good thing. However, critique when done in a healthy way can be helpful and we'll circle back to that in just a little bit, but I want to talk about some quick distinctions. Let's talk about slander. So we'd already talked about this definition of slander. It's an action or crime of making a false spoken statement damaging your person's reputation. The goal is to tear somebody down. And as a verb, it's making damaging statements about someone. And then there's criticism, which one is one that I kind of struggle with because I feel like criticism is like not a, necessarily a bad thing. But when I look at the definition of it, it doesn't seem very positive. Criticism is the expression of disapproval of someone or something based upon perceived faults or mistakes. And look at the words that go with it. Censure, condemnation, disapproval. And that second one, condemnation, seems to me to be a pretty counterintuitive gospel idea. Doesn't seem to go with the teachings of Jesus who says there's no condemnation. And then critique is a detailed analysis and assessment of something. As a verb, it's to evaluate a theory or practice in a detailed and analytical way. And what I would argue is that as a church, we need to move away from slander, obviously, but even to move away to criticism to an extent into this land of critique if we feel like we need to. We've all been in situations where we've been critiqued or criticized for things that seem pretty petty. They don't seem to like, make a big difference in what's happening. They're not like the big deal of things that are going on. And so we sit and get criticized, and we're like, I don't really see what the value of this is. Is this just to nitpick my life, or is this to actually add value to who I am as a human being? Now, critique does this. I made this table like five minutes before slides, so if there's typos, just get over it, okay? Uh, <laughs> that's what I tell my students. I make a slideshow, because they're all like, Mr. Hickox, you didn't put a comma there. And I'm like, you don't put a comma anywhere, ever, so don't talk to me about that, okay? Um, so here's the, here's the kind of the perception. This is kind of like some wonders and some thinkings about the differences between the three, all right? So slander, we'll start there and we'll, and we'll work right to left. Slander seeks to control an argument. Doesn't matter how they do it, their goal is to be in control of the argument. Could be lies, could be falsities. It prioritizes power over partnership. It is, its goal is the destruction of the person. That's an important term in this. If you follow that thread of a person, we notice that as we get to the farther to the left, that person part starts to go away a little bit. But in slander, it's the destruction of the person. And it says people are the problem. And it does not take into account a person's humanity, let alone their image-bearing likeness of God or their dignity. And the goal, again, is to destroy the person. Criticism seeks to point out flaws and judges good or bad. It places itself as the, the moral fence and says, that's good, that's bad, I'm in charge of that. It's never satisfied. There are only problems. It makes perceived solutions to problems not fully understood. And it says, society would be much better if everyone did it my way. Like, if they would just do that job the way that I would do it, I bet everything would be a lot better. Uh, critique, on the other hand, is a little bit different. 
their critique is addressing unhealthy ideas or systems. It addresses practical inefficiency. It understands details, backgrounds, and personality. And then it offers solutions. And this is like not an exhaustive list, but this is just kind of within me, my perception of the three. So one thing that we notice is that criticism and slander are focused upon people. And the goal is to criticize or tear down that individual. When we move to critique, we notice that critique takes a different turn. It's not addressing the person and tearing down the person. It's instead working through the idea, the system, which is impersonal, and that's okay. To go, I think there's an idea there that is an issue. And we talk about this in education. We go, if a student is acting out in your class, the goal is to address the behavior. It's not to address the student. In the sense of, I'm not going to that student saying, you're a bad student because of the behavior that I see. Instead of saying, that was a bad decision, but you are a quality person. I care about you. You made a bad choice. Criticism says, no, that doesn't really matter. The person is not, the, the, the issue is not the behavior. The issue is the person. Fundamentally, the person is flawed. And a great picture of this came up this last week. I don't know if you have been following what's been going on at Ashbury University, Kentucky. Yeah, and for the most part, we've seen a lot of really positives from that. But because of our like, evangelical moral policing bent, we're kind of like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if this is good. I don't know if having thousands of people come out to worship Jesus and confess sin and humility is a good thing. All right? And so we kind of become critical. And I, and I would admit that this is my personality, too. I'm like, well, who, I don't know. Who's, who's teaching it? What the, what's their theology? What do they believe about the gifts of the Spirit? What's going on there? Who's, teach, who's, who's leading this thing? Kids? 20-year-old kids? They don't know anything about following Jesus. They can't figure out their bank accounts, let alone how to follow Jesus, okay? And so the conversation starts to take this conversation. I go, oh, I'm kind of pulling away from this beautiful, could be great thing, an outpouring of the Spirit, to making it about me and my good or bad judgment of something. And Mike Cosper wrote um, an article in Christianity Today where he talked a little bit about the reaction that we've seen to Ashbury. And he says this as a few excerpts. Um, there have been numerous, the response has mostly been positive, by the way. Like most people are really excited about it. He actually went there and a bunch of Christian leaders went there to kind of see what was going on. And one of the cool things about it is, is like people that are like celebrity pastors will come and be like, hey, I'm a celebrity pastor. Let me teach at this. And they're like, no, we don't want you to do that. And you're kind of like, wow, that's impressive. But they would say, it's not really about this like celebrityism. It's about having this outpouring of the spirit and figuring out what to do with it. Uh, it says, most of it's a positive, but there have been numerous critical reactions from many corners of Christian culture that range across the ideological spectrum. One person said, revival is more than singing and crying. And I've seen some say, I'll believe it's revival when they denounce their toxic and abusive theology. Others said, frankly, you can name almost any topic and find someone tweeting or blogging about how the Ashbury revival isn't adequately addressing it. And it goes on to get these perceptions of they're too theologically driven. They're not theologically driven enough. There's too much of the Spirit. There's not enough of the Spirit. And they go back and forth like this on social media debating something, completely watering down what could be something amazing and time will tell if it is or it isn't, right? It's not our place to go, okay, I'm going to judge this. And he goes on to say this, by defining faith as right doctrine, right practice, or right politics, we reduce it to something manageable. We also build borders that can clearly determine who is in and who is out. But grace is an untamed thing. I love that. We said that. Grace is an untamed thing. 
consistent only in its tendency to defy reason and laugh at our expectations. There is a lavishness to it, whether it's in God's tendency to save the greatest of sinners or in the indiscriminate way Jesus dispenses miracles and mercy in his ministry. Recognizing this fact doesn't mean we should dismiss concerns about doctrine inside the chapel or social action outside the chapel. The history of revival should remind us that both matter in long-term success of any movement. But it does mean we should have humility when grace shows up in ways we did not expect, as well as patience in the work of God that might follow. Now, again, we're not saying whether it's good or bad. Time's going to tell what, the, what this thing is, right? But the point is for Christians to get on social media and go, hey, listen, I feel like I have a place to say whether something is good or bad based upon my own opinions about it. It's actually a, a destructive reality within Christianity right now. To decide that social media or any sort of public discourse is the place where we're going to decide and criticize, other than critiquing. You may be able to address ideas, maybe be able to address systems, sure. Maybe something's just not working practically and needs to change, go for it. When we start looking at people and deciding it's our place to decide whether they're good or bad, to decide whether they should be in or out, that's not our job. Now, we can look at ideas in the world and in culture and say that they're fundamentally flawed or broken, that they're causing harm. But that's an idea. An idea doesn't have a soul. An idea doesn't have a human experience. It's just an idea. And it's okay to critique those things. It's okay to criticize those things. But when we say, oh, someone who follows that idea, I have a whole list of judgments for them based upon my ideology. That is where the church becomes this echo chamber of negativity. But I don't know about you, but if we're trying to create a culture of awesomeness that people are drawn to, the last thing you want to be is be like, hey, I go to that church. Those people are so critical. I love it. (laughs) Man, they stand in moral judgment of culture all the time. I just can't get enough of it. No, because the reality of it is what people are drawn to is this idea of this beautiful humility to say, I'm not actually sure What's going to happen in that situation? But it looks great. Maybe the fruit of it? I don't know. We'll see. But we also just could just rejoice and say, well, right, what's happening right now is great. And it's the same thing in a person's life, you know? It's, how, it's funny how quickly we go, oh, yeah, it's great. My son or daughter just started going to church. It's awesome. It's a charismatic church. I don't, so, I don't know. I'm not sure how they feel about the gifts of the Spirit. Who cares? If your son or daughter is going to church and hearing the gospel, that's a good thing. I remember when I, was, when I was leading a church in, in Eugene, and the conversation we had was this idea of like parachurch ministries, and we had this horrible critique of Young Life. We said like, ah, oh, Young Life, the, the, kids aren't, the kids aren't coming to church, and so we gotta get these kids to get them plugged into church, and Young Life doesn't bridge that gap very well, and then we go, well, what are we doing? We're not interacting with kids at all. So at least Young Life is doing 80% of the work to go to a campus and meet with students, so why would we sit back and go, okay, let's judge this group of people because they're not doing the way things we would want them to do? To a certain extent, we just need to rejoice that the gospel is going out. We rejoice that the Holy Spirit is moving in people's lives. And you know what? It's messy. It's not clean cut. And as much as in our society we value that performance and external reaction and clean cutness of Christianity, we have to accept the fact that it is messy. It's going to bring messy people into our reality. And that's okay. And good for us, because if we start valuing the same too much, we're actually moving towards a negative aspect of our church rather than a positivity, and we'll get to that in just a second. So at this point, we have to ask ourselves two questions. How should we, 
as Jesus' followers, respond to being slandered? And two, how do we allow, how do we allow and practice critique without an evolving into negative criticism and slander? In a 2013 research article, somebody went through the entire Gospel of Matthew and picked out how many times Jesus dealt with false accusation. And there were tendencies that arose from that. And he said the top three things he saw were, he asked questions, he withdrew from a place, he literally left the situation, or three, he kept silent. Only one time in the Gospel of Matthew did Jesus rebuke a false accusation. And it's not towards the rebellious, crazy, lifestyle, hedonistic person. Who does he rebuke? The Pharisees. The moral majority. The religious elite. That's the person who brings the slander to Jesus, and that's the person he rebukes. One time, or a few, maybe a few moments, but the majority of the time when he is accused, even by the same group of people, he asks questions to get them to think. And he's brilliant in this. He puts the onus back on them. Okay, if that's what you think, then what about this? Or he leaves the location. And we see Paul and Barnabas doing that in Acts. They're slandered, they're critiqued. Now, do they stand up and fight and say, listen, I have my rights as an individual? No, because it wasn't 2023 America, but that's not the point. The point is, they don't fight that. They just go, I'm gonna stay here, and my job right now is to encourage believers. And then when it got really intense, they left. They moved on. I think we have to understand that leaving a conversation of conflict does not mean we've lost the conversation, nor does it mean we've won the conversation. We have this whole mindset of like reality TV show where somebody says something really intense and then just leaves, and it's like, whoa, they really got them there. No, they just left. What are you supposed to say as someone's leaving? But at the same time, as followers of Jesus, we can go, I'm gonna leave this conversation because the ultimate goal is not to win the argument. The goal is to move the kingdom of God forward. And for Paul and Barnabas, they left the situation because the mission at the end of the day was not to make sure that they were right. They were ultimate, their goal at the end of the day was to continue to keep the gospel moving forward. And if they stay and fight that conversation, it was going to be negative. It was not gonna lead to anything of value for them. Now, let's be honest, this does not sound easy, nor does it sound right. We're kind of like, sure about, are you sure about this? Like, this doesn't seem right. Everything about this pushes against our human nature for justice and immediate results, and yet Jesus offers us hope in the Beatitudes where he says this in the Beatitudes, blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and mutter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for greatness your reward in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets who were before you. If you feel beaten down because people are slandering you because you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus says, listen, I'm going to give you power. I want you to know that you can be blessed in that. It doesn't mean happy, but it means I'm going to validate you. You're doing the right thing in that conversation. And Ronald Rollheiser says this, we have to be careful about giving back in kind. That means what the world gives to us we're not going to reciprocate it back onto the world. The Christian church is not, the community of Christ is not meant, it's meant to be a group of believers who shine back onto the world Jesus, not shine back onto the world itself. Right? 
So when we respond in kind, we respond with, what you give me, I'm going to give back to you. You want to go toe-to-toe with me? That's fine. I'll go toe-to-toe with you too. I'm not weak. I'm a lion, not a sheep. But then Jesus calls us sheep. So what do we do with that? We critique that idea because Jesus' idea of power is totally conflicting with us. And so then how we close this out, how do we allow and practice critique and living in critique without evolving into negative criticism and slander? How do we as believers respond appropriately to slander, hypercriticism? How do we avoid such practices in our own life? And it's still a quick story as we kind of get to the end here. Um, over the last month, I would say, like, at the start of, like, at the start of, like, February, I had this, like, realization that I'm a critical person. And I identify with being negative so much in my life because I thought it was a positive thing. Like, oh, you know, I can kind of, like, get into a situation or organization and find its flaws, and I can kind of, like, be, you know, kind of make decisions that will help it get better, and I'm kind of, it's kind of the way I am. Like, I'm good at that stuff. And it's true, there is value in that, in that critiquing. But I also realized I was being really negative. And I was finding a lot of times the conversations I were having were negative about people. And I realized I was like, I don't know that this is a good representation in my walk with Jesus. So I had to go to a friend of mine. Let's just say who it is. It's Brett. I went to Brett. <laughs> and I said, hey, listen, man. I want to tell you I've been super critical of you. And I'm sorry. Because that's not what a good friend does. A friend as a follower of Jesus does not act one way around you and then a different way around somebody else. And I had to repent him, and it was really awkward, because you're like, do you want the details? And he's like, no. <laughs> I'm not, it's okay. I don't need the details. I'm like, okay, good, because I, I probably wasn't going to tell you anyway, all right? And so I felt really good. I was okay. I feel like I'm kind of moving forward. And then at my work, I was criticized. And I was like, whoa. Like, I don't even know what this is about, but it was like, kind of came out of nowhere, and I was like, whoa, what? You mean to tell me that I'm doing something wrong? Are you sure we're talking about the same person? You're the right Carson, right, in this conversation, right? And uh, being on the other side of criticism, there's this, like, deflating nature to it. When you're called into a conversation, you're called out for something that you're like, I don't even know if this is of value, but I know that, like, I need to figure out what I'm going to do with it. And so I drove home and I just kind of relaxed and drove home quietly and listened to some peaceful music. No, I drove home fuming, <laughs> like smoke coming out of my ears, like crazy emo rock, just in my, in my, my headphones on in my car. Like, you don't know who I am. Like, you don't get me at all. Uh, boy, if I was in that conversation again, I would have said this and I would have said that and I would have talked about this thing that he did wrong too and I would have gone this whole thing and I realized at the end of the day, there is zero value in that right? Because Jesus tells us, hey, listen, it's not what you take in that destroys you. It's what comes out of you. So as a Christian or as a follower of Jesus, can I take in criticism without then doling it back in kind? Can I do that? Can I be a lightning rod for the culture? Take that in. Okay, yes, I've been criticized. I don't agree with it, but I don't know if going back towards and firing off my own critique is going to fix anything. Nor does it represent a good representation of what Jesus does. And so one of the things that I want to ask us is in our, in our, as we close is to ask this question. Are you a person of blessing or are you a person of cursing? Now, as a follower of Jesus, your identity is found in being a person of blessing. And yet, 
we tend to find ourselves cursing. If you've ever gone into an argument with your spouse or your child, and you walk around the corner and you go, oh, this, 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 no, I'm gonna like this, 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 and this. You never say it to them because you know that would be a terrible idea. But you do talk about it like to yourself and in your mind. I gotta ask you, are you a person of cursing or are you a person of blessing? And again, I've never done that. So I don't, you have to tell me if that's what you do or not. I don't know. <laughs> so the reality of it though is we have to think about this because our conversations with people and, and how they interact, like we have to think about the fact that we don't like being cursed. It doesn't fit right. We're like, this, I don't need this in my life. I don't want this in my life. We've all had those negative conversations, and yet we will be quick to reciprocate that. You know, my son Ollie, when he draw, draws on the wall, why do you always do this? Like, why do you do this? Do you not understand this? No, he's three cars, and that's not important. Why are you doing this? In that moment, I am cursing him. I'm pronouncing a judgment on him. You always do this. You're out to get me. This is your power struggle with me. But I can talk about the behavior without making it personal. That was a bad decision, Ollie. I still love you. You made a bad choice. And we have to have that conversation with ourselves. If we're going to be people of blessing or people of cursing, Rollheiser says this, Ronald Rollheiser, he says, by the way, if you haven't read Sacred Fire by Ronald Rollheiser, you need to get it immediately and read it. Um, it's on the bookshelf back there, but if it was, you could buy it on Amazon. Blessing someone is to see and admire the person, speak well of him or her, and give away some of your life so that he or she might have more life. Do you want to give away life? Do you want to give away, or do you want to give away death? Do you want somebody in your life to feel like when you come around them, they're like, oh, that person, they just, I feel they're so life-giving. Right? As opposed to being like, no, what about that person? They just tear me down every time I'm around them. It feels just great. Call them up. Hey, I need to be torn down, so come on over and be negative. Okay? No, the reality is we're drawn to people like this, but I want to read this one more time. If we're going to have the idea of blessing, consider not just saying, oh, I don't want to be negative. I don't want to curse anyone, but instead replace that behavior with something else that is Jesus-centered by saying, blessing someone, blessing someone, blessing someone is to see and admire that person. I really appreciate like, how you do this. I just want to tell you I'm really thankful for that. Speak well of him or her. When they're not around, it's the same. Now, that person is so good at this. And give away some of your life that he or she might have more life. Yeah, you know, you can make some negative points. You can make some arguments. You can tear them down, sure. But at the end of the day, don't you want to give away more of your life? It's an interesting question to ask. A gesture of blessing, realizer continues to say this, feeds the other. A cursing Slander, criticism, gesture, feeds off them. Do you want to take life from someone? Or do you want to give life to them? And then two, find appreciation in people's differences. Being in community means around people that are unique. And it's okay and it's good for us. Because we seek to find, we seek to find people that talk like us, vote like us, think like us in every way, dress like us, are people. That's the whole like verbal ad they have on YouTube where it's like around your people. We're building, if we're looking for people that vote like us, think like us, dress like us, and talk like us, we are a cult, not a church. The cults dress the same, think the same, talk the same, and a church is supposed to be more diverse than that. And it's okay, and it's good. We don't want to build a cult, we're building a church 
Value the uniqueness of your community and stop trying to get everyone to look, think, and talk and feel the same as you do. Praise more. The ultimate picture of maturity and generativity, Rollheiser, again, is not that of a warrior or martyr dying for a cause. Noble as that may be, ultimate maturity is seeing the picture of a blessing elder, a grandmother, a grandfather, a parent, a teacher, a coach, a mentor, anyone else with power and authority standing before the life and energy of the young and like the creator of the original creation, like the father at the baptism of Jesus, basking in that energy and saying, it is good. It is very good. And in you, I take delight. The ultimate maturity is not martyrdom. Paul, in this passage we just read, does not get martyred. Would it be valuable if he did? Should he be like, whoa, this guy really is, seems to really care about his faith a lot. But listen, if the ultimate act of maturity is being martyred, then what's the point? You're called to live like Jesus. And the conversation goes, listen, the actual act of maturity is when you can look at somebody who's giving you negativity, or like somebody who's not giving you negativity, and go, it is good, it is very good, and you I take delight. Ultimate maturity is you as a grandfather, a parent, a coach, a teacher, a boss, dispensing blessing rather than cursing. Critique the idea and not the person. Critique theories, systems, ideas. But if you must critique the person, assume that the person wants to do the right thing. And five, just really simple here, get off social media. Delete it. There is no value in it. And I say that knowing very good chance I might go home and check Twitter to see if the Mets won today, but that's not important. The point is, get rid of it. Or at least just stop going to it as a reflex. It's an addiction. That, and you guys, like, we realize that what social media does is it actually keys in on our deep-seated emotions, extreme joy and extreme anger. And it draws you into that. Where you're like, oh, I, oh, I gotta say something. No, you don't. You don't have to say anything. You can extend rest in the character and work of Jesus and say, I have faith that God is bigger than this. I have faith that Jesus is stronger than this political ideology and I can rest in that and have faith in that and rest from the anxiety of that world. When, when I went through the detox, that sugar detox, what I realized was it was so deeply seated in my life. It was so difficult. And for you today, I, I know that for some of this it goes, I don't know if I can move on from this. I don't know if I can change like, my reality. But the reality of it is it is deep seated. It is a part of our culture. It's a horrible part of our culture. It's a toxic part of our culture. And taking it in and figuring out what to do with it is hard. And yet, Jesus says, listen, you, your job is to take in that negativity. You're going to see that's going to happen. It's going to be all around you, the criticism and the cursing, and not reciprocate it back onto the world. Can we take that and do that as a community of God and desire that? If we want to create a culture of awesomeness, a culture of awe like the church in Acts, we don't need to do these big flashy things. We don't need to have a bunch of lasers and stuff, okay? Instead, we could be a community of Christ that draws people in by saying, like, I go and hang out with those people, and my goodness, I do not speak negatively. They're blessing. One person just knew my name. I really appreciate you come here to do this. We think about that as a culture of awesome. That's what draw people in. Big events, big flashy things. Yeah, they're great, they're fun, they can draw a lot of people, but at the end of the day, a culture of awesome is created in the culture that is created by the people. And what draws people in this situation to Paul and Barnabas is the fact that they are willing to stay in this community where they're being ridiculed and continue to encourage the believers. 
Let's consider it. Let's walk in it. And let's ask in our lives, are we living in slander? Are we living in criticism? Are we living in critique? And let's move towards a place of health to know how to reciprocate to the world, not what it gives us, but what Christ would call us to give to it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you give us something to give back to the world. And Lord, we know that for many of us, there's financial burden, there's anxiety about our family. God, we know that you've called us to live as a blessing in our communication, and our mindset. And as we embark on a season in the Catholic calendar of Lent, Jesus, we so often figure out what we're gonna take away from our lives, but God, would you call us into action to live into that reality of who you are, to press into your identity, your desire for us to live as a blessing. So God, I pray for this community this week, God, as they may interact with that negativity, as they may interact with that critique, as they may be criticized in their job or in their home or from their kids or from a coworker or what have you, Jesus, or from a coach, whatever it may be, Jesus. And I pray, God, that you would help them to take that and process it with you and with people that are good and trustworthy. And I pray for those who are in positions of authority, parents, teachers, bosses, shift leaders, influential people. I pray, God, that you would help us to live as blessings and speaking blessing into people's lives. We thank you, Jesus. Give us strength this week to honor you in your name.